Marty, I feel like you've been hiding something from us these past couple of years. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church again. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we're going to dive right into our series that we're finishing uh, this week and next week in Song of Solomon, and then uh, March 24 and on, we'll be in a, a new uh, series called Big Questions throughout the summer, which is when we're preaching uh, what you guys ask us, essentially. Uh, the, the, any questions you have that you want to email us, or actually... Uh, got a new account set up or alias uh, this week called Big Questions at HiawathaChurch.com that goes to me and Spencer, uh, the pastors here. If you have any questions theologically, philosophically related to Hiawatha's ministries, you know, style or perspective or whatever, but especially anything in the Bible that's confusing or you want to hear a sermon on topically, we'd love that. We've gotten about 10 so far and we need more. So please, otherwise let's preach what we want, which is fine too. Uh, but that's going to go through Labor Day uh, weekend um, at, at this point. That's the plan anyway, and then something new for the fall. So uh, but if you're uh, new to our church, new to the Bible, new to, new to Song of Solomon, uh, just to catch up to speed really briefly here, there's so much to recap, which we don't have time for, but um, at least understand that uh, where we are in the book right now, so uh, King Solomon is the author of this book. He's, he was an actual king of Israel. Around 960 BC is when he lived and ruled, he's son of David, uh, and he wrote uh, a good uh, chunk, actually, of this wisdom literature genre of the Old Testament, so the book of Ecclesiastes as well, and a couple of Psalms and some other Proverbs, some other pieces there. Uh, but he wrote this book as well. It's basically, it's a, it's a uh, genre-wise, it's wisdom literature, but it's a poem. It's a love story, love dialogue, essentially, between him and his wife. It uh, covers their engagement all the way through to their wedding and their, the night of the, when they consummate the marriage and into these kind of post-wedding conflicts and, uh, and reunifying uh, dialogues. And, uh, and today, actually, kind of two weeks ago, and then uh, this week, we're at the point of the book where it's, it's almost over, but secondary consummations about to ensue. Uh, but the greater idea is that they are madly in love, and there's this a continual invitation kind of going both ways. Today, she's speaking entirely, but a lot of times he speaks, and, and they both speak. Uh, this, there's this continual invitation to love, to commit, to have sex, to be close, and to go away with. And so that's actually been that latter theme has been a pronounced uh, theme. We talked more about that a couple weeks back to our last series, if you were here, our sermon, if you were here for that. But uh, remember how we're approaching the book as well? There's, there's multiple layers to this. It's really, it's notoriously difficult to understand because it's Old Testament literature, it's poetry, so kind of cryptic as well. Uh, but to understand how it relates to the greater story is just, it, that's hard in and of itself when you're talking about anything in the Old Testament, but especially this genre. So it's tricky but remember how we're approaching it as though it's as though the Bible gives us a key to understanding it elsewhere in the book. And if that's a new concept to you, understand that, that the Bible is a story. It's not a collection of random sayings or precepts or proverbs. Uh, it's one story with one main hero, Jesus Christ, and one ultimate author, God the Father. And he's telling a story from multiple angles and kind of a multi-genre approach to basically saying to the world that's fallen away from him in their sin, uh, that I love you and I'm committed to you. And I'm going to become like you to associate as one of you, to die as one of you in your place. And that being the main means by which I'm going to woo you back to myself. And, and the cool thing is, and not a song of Solomon is, he talks about all of that, that the whole gospel idea there as, uh, as a love story. And as though he is like a groom to us. God calls himself a groom all over the Bible. And us, his people, so Israel in the Old Testament, in a variety of uh, ways, and then the church, uh, Jew and Gentile who believe in the New Testament, ultimately uh, the bride of God or the bride of Christ. And so if God does that, and if this is like an, he's informing the way that we 
should read themes of marriage into the Bible. And so as I said, to start this series, and pretty much every week since, I'll say it again for those of you who are new to this, that you just don't see in the Bible uh, God or, I mean, any author talk about marriage that's not kind of married in itself to God. And so God never says, here's some precepts about marriage, but I have nothing to do with it. You, you, you never see that. God's always saying, let's talk about marriage, but as you talk about it, you're instantly talking about me at the same time because I invented it, and I'm trying to say something to the world through a, a faithful, committed, every relationship, human-wise, of course, is imperfect, but a faithful, committed, relatively speaking, healthy relationship. He says, I am like that husband in that relationship. And in, in this poem, in this book of the Bible, I am like King Solomon. I am a true and better Solomon. I am I am king, but more than just of Israel, I'm king of the universe. I'm the ultimate son of David who has come to love at the highest level by laying down his life for his friends, for lost sinners like us. So have that in mind. There's two layers to this. There's the human side. What does this tell us about marriage, kind of on a human level? There's principle there for sure. But the greater idea uh, going on here is that this is a whisper of God's love for lost, lost people. We'll spend most of our time on the latter side today, in past sermons, we did a little more 50-50, and it's not always equal with every section, but uh, today, these last uh, few weeks, a little bit more emphasized on the divine, which is the, the better side, the, the better news side uh, anyway, and the ultimate trajectory of what's going, what's going on here. So ask yourself those questions. How is Solomon, and maybe what she says today, representative of how the church reciprocates the love that God first shows them? Uh, what themes here are employed, uh, written, that come up elsewhere in the Bible that help tell the story. And if that's a newer thing for you, if you're brand new to this book, maybe we'll walk through that. We'll review some things today and talk about some unique things as well as it pertains to love and redemption. And uh, in today's case, actually, a jealous kind of love. That's really good news for us. But whatever the question, the form of the question is, asking those questions, who is God and what's the nature of his love, is one of the best questions we can ever ask ourselves and our church and community and, and, and so forth. In fact, it was uh, A.W. Tozer, I think. I forgot to look this up. I'm going to give him credit, but if I'm wrong, correct me later. But A.W. Tozer, I think, you said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God, what comes to mind, what characteristics of his, or whatever it is, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you as a, as a human being. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the safeguard then to approaching a very cryptic, hard-to-get book like Song of Solomon, is asking those questions and saying, what is this telling me, not just about marriage, but about the God of marriage? The God who invented it to shout to the world, to say, I'm kind of like this. And he does that many other ways as well, but marriage is one of the primary things that he shouts to the world, saying, I am like a faithful husband who dies for and deeply, deeply, madly loves his wife. So let's read uh, Song 8, just, just uh, three verses today. We'll come back to love as strong as death here in a minute. It's kind of the main uh, point of today in verse um, 6. Let's read these three verses. Uh, Song 8, 5 to 7 will be on screen here. You can follow along in your Bibles. Verse 5, she's speaking. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you, and there your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, 
he would be utterly despised. Please pray with me. God, thank you for this book, for this today's passage that tells us a lot about you, a lot about love and a particular kind of love that is jealous in every good sense of the idea. It tells us about redemption. God, I pray that you'd help us to learn a lot about how the Bible hangs together today to connect some dots here, how it taps into the greater storyline of how you're trying to reverse the curse that's infected everything, especially our own hearts, but everything under the sun, and uh, to be captivated by love. Uh, The gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It's a very different idea there. It's not something that we uh, really immediately do something in light of, but rather we rest in. And so I pray that that would be our ultimate uh, taking away point today, is uh, to be captivated maybe by an aspect of your love that is uh, either brand new to us or something we've just flat out forgotten and are not in any way living in light of. So uh, edify and grow your church today, God. Hiawatha Church is your church. You're the chief shepherd. Pray that you'd lead us to green pastures uh, through Song 8, 5 to 7 today. Uh, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. All right, so uh, two aspects today. We're going to look at the theme of wilderness as kind of a review today. Then, as I said before, get to the uh, verse 6 uh, idea of love being uh, as strong as death. And there's some parallelism there. It's a, it's a uh, type of poetry you see a lot of in the Old Testament where they kind of say the same thing twice but differently. So to say jealousy is fierce as the grave is to say that uh, jealous love is fierce. It's relentless. Many waters can't quench it. And when you apply that, not just to Solomon here, and to any husband who has that kind of love, it's a good thing, but it's a great thing when you say that's like God. And so we'll come to that here a little bit later. But this first thing, uh, by means of review, and also because it sets up uh, the latter thing, we're going to spend a little time here uh, looking at her first, the first thing she says, and it's rhetorical because it, it sounds like someone else is speaking because it's a question, but she's talking rhetorically about herself. Who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved. So it's a picture of King Solomon and his bride. They're married at this point, uh, just to be clear. They're married here, and they're coming up out of the wilderness, and she's leaning on him, and she's asking, who is that? And referring to uh, herself, and she's described, but mostly the love that's depicted there is uh, described here in these latter two verses. And next week, we'll actually talk a little bit more about some of this as well. But the phrase here is, coming up from the wilderness Uh, leaning on the beloved. And and if you've been here since the beginning of the series or if you just know this about the book, wilderness is a prominent uh, theme. It's come up more than once in the book and it's a deeply, not just a a passing detail, but a deeply theological one. On the human side though, uh, really what's being, remember this is all contextual. They they just had a bit of a conflict in their, of sorts, at least perceived on her side of things and they're coming up out of that. So on one level, this human side of it, this maybe more immediately accessible side on some levels, the human side, is the idea of wilderness implies a time of conflict. They had this time of separation or trial or uh, conflict dryness, at least separation on whatever level, emotional or otherwise, in the relationship, and they're coming up out of that uh, together. And we, we uh, called it a few weeks ago because a lot of commentators do uh, casually. Is It's basically what's going on here in last week, two weeks ago, we talked about this, is this time of Secondary consummation or makeup sex basically is what's going on here uh, in the latter parts of the book. So on one level, that's just simply what's going on. They're coming out of this time of post-marital dryness or separation uh, together. But on another level, there's something much more theological being portrayed, especially when we ask that great interpretational question of where else do we see these words employed or used in the Bible? And how, how do those more clear stories help us read these more cryptic uh, places that are, that are very similar. So if you were here 
Back in chapter 3, uh, Solomon comes up for the wedding, if you remember that, out of the wilderness as well, uh, to get married. So it's the wedding chapter, the wedding section, the beginning of chapter 3. We talked about this in a lot more detail there. So if you are more interested in this, I want to point you back to that, maybe to our, just talk to me if you would like, I'd love to chat, or back to our sermon online about that. But if you're here for that, we talked about how the theme of wilderness is a very pronounced motif, biblically, theological motif, that stretches across both Testaments, starting back in the Old Testament with Israel's exodus from Egypt. When they were imprisoned there under a a pharaoh who was making them work harder than uh, the good pharaoh earlier in their time there, they're there for 400 years, but in prison, crying out for deliverance, God hears them, sends Moses, exoduses them out miraculously from their condition, then subsequently uh, wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, and then further subsequently enters the promised land after those uh, 40 years. So when we say Exodus, we're kind of referring to all of this together. It, it can refer to that first kind of left side, Exodus proper. Exodus means to be delivered, to come up out of something. It refers to the left side kind of proper, but then really this whole event, this is uh, this principal salvation event in the Old Testament when God was delivering people, exodusing them out, his people Israel, from Egypt, but then wandering in that wilderness for this placeholding time before they finally entered this land that God had promised them, but they weren't in for hundreds of years, but they finally enter behind Moses' successor, uh, Joshua. So this is just a synopsis of this, but the idea here that I really want to point to is the idea of wilderness in the middle. So when, when wilderness comes up then, even if it's just a word poetically, like it is in the Song of Solomon, or whether it's uh, quoted in the Psalms or the Prophets or elsewhere in the Bible, it's always hearkening back to this idea theologically. You see it come out especially in the Psalms, but comes up here a lot in the Song of Solomon as well. And so when wilderness is just mentioned, it kind of points us, the reader, and Israel initially who first experienced this, backwards and forwards. Because this is time in between. So wilderness says, we just came up out of Egypt. We've been liberated. We've been freed. We've been saved. Our God heard our cries and he came to our rescue and we're no longer pressed under the thumb of Pharaoh. So wilderness says that because we're in the wilderness now. We're not in Egypt, just by default, right? So it, it, it says that, it remembers that, it pronounces that idea of God is good. He loves us and he saved us. But it also looks ahead. It, it says it holds out, wilderness does, holds out this hope that this isn't the end either, that there's uh, this kind of secondary, in one sense, consummatory thing that's going on here of God is going to bring his people into a land where flowing with milk and honey and where his full-blown manifest presence is to be with him and rest with him and, and set up camp there and build cities. And so, so the promised land is the goal, but in the wilderness, those 40 years, they were, um, they were in the middle. But they're both, both good news. It looks back to Egypt, God saved, looks ahead to the promised land and, um, and says that's coming as, as well. And in fact, uh, some of you might be familiar with this, but the Jews had a biblical annual feast that uh, is prescribed by God in the Old Testament, but an annual thing dedicated to celebrating not just all of this, but particularly the middle event here, uh, the wilderness wanderings called the Feast of Booths. Uh, it helped commemorate the Exodus on the left side, but also celebrate God's faithfulness to help them survive in the wilderness for that time when he fought their battles, when he provided bread and water, Every day, when he was just near them, it was uh, it was meant to commemorate uh, that particular aspect of this greater Exodus 
idea when in fact they did live in booths. And so the Jews would set up tents and booths as kind of this commemorative thing to remember that particular aspect of their uh, salvation experience before they entered the promised land. Add to this idea, fast forward a little bit into the prophet section later in the Old Testament, so centuries actually after this actually occurred in history, God starts to speak again about these things, but in different terms. In one case, he speaks in uh, one of his prophets, Hosea, in 12.9. He says, I am the Lord, speaking to Israel through him, the Lord is your God from the land of Egypt. In other words, I was the one who exodused you up and out. I saved you from Egypt and slavery there. Remember that. But then he goes on. This is the key phrase. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the day of the appointed feast. I will again do this. So all of this that happened here, I'm going to revisit it. I'm going to do it again. And there's going to be another exodus, another wilderness wandering, another booth kind of uh, encamping type time, and then a final promised land entrance uh, once again. And there's layers to that. We're going to talk, talk about all that today for the sake of time. But the idea that God is not, he wasn't done here, but he was going to do it again in the, in the future is a huge, huge biblical theological theme to, to get so that we look ahead and not uh, just backwards. This is where the Song of Solomon picks up here as well in Song 8.5 when it says, again, who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? It is this subtle, kind of like the Hosea passage, it's this subtle suggestion that God is going to do this again because songs written long after Israel had entered the promised land. And so to suggest that there's this love story, this king who's, come, who's in the wilderness again but going to come up out of it into the promised land poetically is uh, huge theologically. It's right in step with different genre in Hosea 12, but both are saying there's another time God's going to act this way and work this way and save in this uh, capacity in and through, from using song language here, in and through his love for his people, saving them from slavery and wedding them to himself. So the question is, how does he do that? And I said, it's layered here, a lot to say, but just for... uh, to be more concise today for the sake of time, ultimately how he does this is through his son, Jesus Christ. The New Testament is chock full of Exodus imagery, uh, likening what Jesus did on a cross as a type of Exodus. One, one example of the just literally dozens and dozens and dozens is in Luke 9, 31. That tells us uh, Jesus spoke in his ministry before his death. He looked ahead to his death, uh, spoke of his departure. The Greek word there is literally Exodus which was he, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What did he do at Jerusalem? He did that. That's basically all he did. He came there for a week. Uh, he talked to a few people. He overturned some tables. He offended the Pharisees. He worked and orchestrated everything so that he would die in the manner that he did to fulfill the scriptures. That's how he went to work for us. And so what he's saying here is, what the gospel writer Luke is saying and Jesus is saying is, basically what I'm doing to use Old Testament language is I am exodusing you out of Egypt. Uh, but this time, not really Egypt physically, your, your Egypt, your ultimate enslaver, which is sin and death. That's why Jesus talks so much about sin, right? And death as the problem that faces humanity that's much greater than any type of Goliath or Philistine or Moabite or, uh, I mean, any of Israel's enemies in the Old Testament, Egyptians, any of them. Those were just forerunners of the greater problem in the world, uh, which was always the case, but they were pictures, not realities. Death and sin and separation from God is the ultimate antagonist of uh, the storyline. So the way he was going to accomplish a new type of exodus and wilderness wandering for us and 
promised land entrance was through his son when he died for our sins. So to pick up on that then, to go back to the wilderness idea, the parallel the Bible makes with the idea of wilderness then is to see our present experience as the church as a wilderness-like time, in between the times, in between our exodus from Egypt, which is embodied here, our escape from sin and death, and our ultimate entrance into the promised land, the new earth, which we eagerly await for, right? Christ comes once to deliver from sins, and we're waiting for him to come again to fully enable us to enter the new earth, the new promised land of his rest and presence. But if that's the case, then right now, where are we? We're in the wilderness, right? Like Israel was, we're in the time in between. Where God is with us, we've been saved, but we're, we have one eye in the future too, right? We're looking ahead. We're waiting for that full-blown entrance to be with God, for him to eradicate death fully forever, to look us in the eye and wipe away our tears, love us, hold our hands, walk with us, touch us and us him. That's what we have to look forward to, is to be, to have absolutely no more separation with our God whatsoever. And that's pretty much true now, spiritually, but one day, Praise be to God, and we prayed that he would hasten that day, but one day uh, physically as well. So uh, two things then just to, to take from this is why, partly why I'm going here today is it's in Song of Solomon, it's a repeated theme for emphasis. It's important to get this idea, just to read our Bibles right in this area. But uh, two takeaways, one, if all this is true, then the idea of wilderness in Song of Solomon 8 and any other time you read it in the Bible should be deeply meaningful for you. Because it speaks to your experience right now as Christians. You might read about Israel's experience and think, well, that was theirs. But actually, no, it's yours. Because you are, the Bible says, this, this kind of true Israel entity now who, are, who has been saved, exodus out of something much more significant, and you're wandering. And, and, and then we can read about, and not going to repeat all these, we'd be here till dinner. But um, everything that happened to Israel in the Old Testament is a, basically a picture in the wilderness, the desert, is a picture of how God is interacting with us now. And there's some differences, but, I mean, if we're in the wilderness, then we can expect God to meet us like he did Israel, right? To, in other words, here's a few things. To nourish them, to feed them, to fight our battles for us, right? Like he did for them on so many occasions. To guide us through the fog, to atone for our sins, to further and kind of in a continual basis, to give us rest, and even though we'll have lots of difficulty like they did, he's faithful to, uh, to bring us in. But ultimately, he's with us. He's with us. And so it's, a, it's this very pronounced, it's not just you've been liberated from your sins, praise be to God, but you've es- actually escaped. In this life now, we have the hope of his presence, and we have the hope that this isn't it either. We're going to enter that promised land. It's incredible hope. Incredible hope. The graces that we experience now in him are just foretastes of uh, much better realities that are uh, to come in his son. So that's the first thing. Wilderness should be very, very deeply meaningful for you and for me, for, for the church, theologically, because that's just where we are in salvation history right now. Secondly, and this uses some song language here now too, and this is a bigger reason why we've been harping on this idea, is that Song of Solomon actually helps understand that in other parts of the scriptures, don't as clearly, which is why I think God is like complementing his word itself with other parts of genres that kind of do different things, but talk about the same thing. And that is, song helps us understand that this new exodus or this salvation we have in Christ is not just a transaction between two parties. It's not just a stamp of you're okay and then God kind of backs off. 
It's not just, well, I'm bored, so I'll save some people today, and then we'll see what happens tomorrow. It's just not what it is. What it is is to borrow from the Song of Solomon. You can basically close your eyes and point to any passage and, and bring that in. Is to say that it's love, right? God's redeeming because he loves, not just because he has to, not because he, well, God's just do this. So, you know, it's not a transact, just a transaction. It, it is a, a, a transaction of sorts, but it's a loving one. It's redemptive love. It got, God's love pushed him towards the Israelites, and it pushed Israel up and out of, of Egypt. And it's the same for us as well. God loved you. He saw you in your distress. He heard your cries, and he said, I'm on my way. And, and his, his arrival looked like him becoming a human being and dying in the, in the worst way possible on a cross, saying, I'm doing this for you. And if you believe in me, escape from Babylon, escape from Egypt, escape from sin and death, come up out. That's, that's, that's what happens, right, when we're saved, is we get that type of experience. But we can't, we got to, what song helps us do is to blend, you know, wilderness and exodus and, and all of that imagery with love. We kind of do this with, kinda, we can't, extrapolated or kind of, it's, it, we can't differ it. It's like this, according to the Bible. Like God's love and his redemption, um, marital love, are uh, what's in focus here. So it's not a transaction, it's a love story about God's crazy radical love for lost sinners. It's hugely good news. So then as we go on from there, so we'll switch gears here now. This kind of sets up the rest of the passage, uh, especially verse 6. So it's almost like, it doesn't really have a question here, but it's almost like it begs that question. If this is love, if part of the purpose is to remind us of this Exodus-like, wilderness-like, redemptive, freeing from slavery, liberating love, and it's God's love that did it, what's the nature of that love? How great is it? And it's pretty great already. Like, we can, you know, take some bunny trails biblically here and talk about how great it is like we already have, but if that's the question, the passage kind of answers it, right? It talks about love in some of the biggest ways you'll read anywhere in the Bible. It's just right here in these couple of verses. It says, Love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. In other words, true love is absolutely relentless, like death. You can't shake it, you can't avoid it, you can't lose it. Many waters, as it says here, cannot quench it. You can't buy it. That last verse, uh, we didn't comment on that, but the idea of someone giving all of his money to buy love and being utterly despised for it just means you can't buy it. Like someone who said, here's a million dollars, now give me, give me that love, is silly. We'd laugh at that, right? We despise the person for having such a twisted view on how love occurs in the world. So love is as strong then as death. It can't be purchased, it can't be quenched, you can't shake it. It's as relentless as and unavoidable as death itself. And so we can look at this then from the same two angles, the human side and and the divine. With the former in mind, the human side, this is not necessarily something that needs to be, uh, you know, uh, robustly defended. Uh, Not all of us have had great marriages, or we haven't seen great marriages, maybe with our folks or our friends, but just speaking, I want to acknowledge that, but speaking generally here, experience validates this idea that true love or good love is is relentless, like death. So, um, Couples then, for example, vow to love each other, right, unto death when, when they marry. And we say, or a, you know, a couple says, till death do us part, or I forgot what ours was, Aletha, but it wasn't quite, it was something like that. I should remember this, shoot. That was, I just realized what I walked into there. That was a trap. 
Um, anyway, but we, we had that in our vows, and most couples do. And some of you guys are engaged, and you're writing your vows now. Uh, make sure, <laughs> I want to write your vows for you. But make sure you have that one in there. That's a really important one. Uh, say something like, I promise to love you unto death, and not even that. Uh, or that alone, I will love you even that far is the idea, right? I, I will love you unto death, and only that will separate our love. But as beautiful as that is, if you've witnessed that at a wedding, and you've seen those promises before God and witnesses, you've been a part of that yourself if you're married, as beautiful as that is, the gospel takes this one step further. Because we say, till death do us part, right? But Jesus says, even death will never separate us or stop my love for you. So much better that is from the Lord. Romans 8 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Well, it's one of the best promises you have in the scriptures that nothing, not, not anything in all creation, including yourself, like you can't take the love of God away. It's given 100% from his side of things, it's a gift. And so what's given like that can't be taken away. We can experience this in this life, and many of us do. We have that type of committed love, but even then it's imperfect. We have days where it's faithless, or it's just imperfect and it hurts, or un- unintentionally, maybe even intentionally. But God's love, is, it, it picks up on the whispers that we get in the world, and it shouts, my love is, is not just strong as death, it's stronger than death. Than death, And even with everything I said, too, about uh, the, the human love side of this thing earlier, you know, human love being less, less than this, and it is less than this because human love can't make the same claims, but human love can still whisper, I think, uh, this type of love that goes uh, past death in that, you know, love makes a surviving spouse remember it, uh, remember him or her and, and the love, and it, and it moves them emotionally, Right? Why would that happen if love was uh, only as strong as death and no further, right? Love continues past the grave in that, uh, in that regard. Or maybe think about it this way. Love is what makes a dying man promise to always be with his wife even after death. You ever thought about why people say that? Like what, what leads people on their, on, their di- on their deathbed as they're dying to say, I'll always be with you uh, in your heart? We can look at that and say, maybe from a biblical perspective, we could say, well, that's not really how it works. It's kind of a false promise in one sense. But we still have to ask the question, what moves people, Christian and non-Christian, to say those kinds of things, right? What moves them to promise these things? And um, I mean, I, now that I have a, a wife and kids and I've thought, I've been super close to, to death before uh, yet, but I still think about these things because my love is so big for my wife and kids that I think about that moment and and honestly, it's, it's one of my biggest fears. I'm not saying it's a rational fear, but one of my biggest fears is not dying, it's leaving behind my family. It's just that idea just um, is almost unbearable sometimes. So I put myself in that situation and I think, well, what would I say in that moment? How would I kind of, you know, these kind of things come to mind. I'd want to promise somehow that my memory would be with them and what I'd say to my son and my daughters and my, especially my wife and all that, so I can empathize with the idea. But you see this portrayed everywhere, right? Maybe you've thought this before, you've seen it portrayed in movies, or read about it in books, or just heard about it happening. The question still remains, why do people say these things? And there's two answers here, there may be a ton more, but one is because I think something, Christian or not, they could be even atheistic, but deep in, something deep inside them knows this idea. 
that love actually is stronger than death. Or they just yearn for it to be true. They hope that maybe it's true. They want to kind of feel that it must be. Hopefully it's true, and they speak as such. Or it's just because, part of the greater thing, as they're saying those things, it's because their story is helping to tell a greater story, one of what God's love is like for a lost world, a God who would actually not just say this. Remember, this is what Jesus does. He's promising his death, but he's promising it won't be the end. He's promising his resurrection. So like someone on their deathbed might say, I promise to be with you after death, God actually delivers on that promise. You ever thought about that? Like he actually does. He actually comes back. He actually says, and he's like a husband to a wife doing this too, right? We're not just making some cute little connections here metaphorically. This is actually a love story. He's saying, I love you, I'm going to die, but death itself will not keep me away from you. I will come back from the grave and in the body, and I will be with you. I'll talk with you, I'll eat with you, I'll touch you, and you and me will talk. See, this is what God has done. This is what his son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. He's actually delivered. And so the whispers we get on a human level are what God shouts from the mountaintops in the gospel. He says, death itself is overrun. I've destroyed it for you and your sins with it. It actually happened, and therefore I have the keys, and death itself cannot keep us apart. So that's what the gospel says. And actually more than this, it's not just that, but if you know the story, more than this, death itself shows itself to be subservient to the purposes of love because uh, it, or death, is actually the means by which true love is shown. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God says, I want to show the world I love them, and one of the principal ways I'm going to do that is by dying in their place. So death becomes the means by which he shows love. So you see what that does. It makes death the slave of love. Death is weaker. Death is subservient. Death is like this, this uh, lesser actor in a play almost that's trying to help it tell a better story. But it's clear from Romans 5.8 in the greater storyline, death is not co-equal with love, which is kind of what you could almost pull from uh, Song 8 if you didn't know the rest of the story. Love is strong as death. God's saying elsewhere, you know, love is stronger than death because God is love. So, of course, he's stronger than death. Death will happen and happens in the world, but partly why it happens is because he wanted to experience death. He can empathize. God, who cannot die, became a human so that he could. It's like, figure that one out. You know, it's like, how in the world, who cannot suffer, became a human so he could suffer for us? But to show us that he loves and to, to, to absorb our sins and absorb the death experience in a substitutionary way so that we wouldn't have to. Incredible that that's a part of our story. But again, the, the mantra here is that death serves love, not the other way around. That's incredibly good news, right? Death is not king in the biblical worldview, in God's eyes. Death is not king. It's an pl- actor in the play, but it's not, uh, it, is, it is not king. Rather, love is king, and God is love. And so God is king, and his son who went to war for us in those, in those matters. Uh, what further helps undergird this, uh, one more verse here from going back to song. Great little verse here, or clause, but what further helps to undergird this idea is verse 6, uh, which is actually a uh, neat little tidbit here. The only time the name of God is used is in this verse, in the whole book. 
It's whispered clearly elsewhere. That's been the whole point of the series, right, is to see God whispering to us. But here it's a little more shouted, and it's clearly linked with what love is, right? What is love? Well, love is the flame of God. So it's harder than to separate the two at this point, right? So we can say that about, about human passions, like love is uh, fire-like. Its, its flashes are, um, are, are the flame of the Lord in the sense that they might, you know, be kind of divine-like or might be, might be faithful or remind us of him. But this is actually saying very flat out that love's flashes are the very flame of the Lord. Love's about him. Love is not about us, ultimately. It's about him. His love's perfect where ours is imperfect, eternal where ours is temporal. And so with that grid further in place with uh, other parts of this passage, we can continue to read these themes as applicable to us in a lesser way, but more applicable to him uh, in, in a greater way. Verse 6, then, as one example of this, which we'll spend the rest of our time on here, is jealousy uh, is fierce as the grave, or jealous love is fierce as the grave. So as we apply this grid of, well, this is really about God and his particular love for us, what does that remind us of? Or what does that tell us about the as- this special aspect of God's love? It tells us that his love for us is jealous. And in Exodus 34, 14, elsewhere in the Bible, you see this come out, where God himself says, do not worship any other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. It's not just saying that God is jealous, but his actual name, one of the names he gives himself is this capital J, Jealous. I have jealousy for my own fame and glory. And, and obviously, jealousy is, is, is denounced elsewhere in the Bible. It can be a very bad thing, but here it's very good. It's good that God wants his fame and glory. It's, it's, it's bad that we rob him of it. And we want it to be ascribed, fame to be ascribed to other things, whether ourselves or other gods or events or whatever. Else, jealousy in that sense is denounced as a major sin, actually. But here, it's good that, that he's jealous. So here in Exodus 34, he's saying, don't worship another god because I'm jealous for my name. Uh, but as we apply Song of Solomon imagery to this, what else is he jealous for? His name, but what else? Us, right? How does Song of Solomon read? He has jealous, it's the husband for the wife, right? And the wife for the husband, but especially this this husband has this jealous type love for, uh, for her. This is amazing. So he's his jealous for his fame, but also jealous for his bride, and we constitute that. So we have to ask ourselves these questions, right? And we talk about love. Did you know that this was an aspect of his love for you? Maybe you never heard this. Maybe you have, but you have a hard time believing it. I feel like I barely have a category for that, just to be honest. Like I, I barely have a category to put this in. It's that crazy and radical that the God of the universe isn't just love, but he's jealous for me and jealous uh, for, for you. And it has to be the case, really. If God is loving, because love and jealousy and jealousy in the good sense of the word, they always go together. You know, to, to not be, to, to use a human example, if, you know, uh, if a husband sees his wife flirting with someone uh, or whatever, has an affair, something in the middle, some kind of extreme there, and he, he's not jealous what does that imply? He's hateful. He doesn't give a rip, right? Passivity uh, and, and hatefulness, non-jealousy in those situations are all, are all linked uh, together. So, uh, so that's what uh, it necessitates that his holy, his holy jealousy uh, for our protection and single-minded love be, be linked up uh, like that together. A couple of quotes here from Charles Spurgeon 
uh, commenting kind of on the song, but also on just this greater concept of God being jealous. He says, Jealousy guardeth like an armed man the marriage covenant. The Lord has been graciously pleased to save his people. I am married to you. The covenant of grace is a marriage covenant, and Christ's church has become his spouse. It is here that God's jealousy is peculiarly liable to take fire. And he continues, I am not afraid for the church of God. So just stop there for a sec. You could say, well, God's jealous God. It's kind of a scary thing maybe, right? But he continues, I'm not afraid for the church. I tremble not for the cause of God. Our jealous husband will never let his church be in danger. And if any smite her, he will give them double for every blow. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, but she shall prevail against the gates of hell. Her jealous husband shall roll away her shame. Her reproach shall be forgotten. Her glory shall be fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. He's quoting Song of Solomon there. For, that, for he that is jealous of himself is jealous for her fair fame. Isn't that amazing? In other words, he actually cares about you. God actually cares. He actually loves you. Wherever you are, he's looking, he's looking at you in your, in your situation and he's, he's jealous for your love and he hates the things that are keeping you from him. He hates the things you're flirting with. Not you. He hates the things that are, that are keeping you at, at arm's distance. He's not, he's not like the deadbeat husband who's okay with an open marriage or the unloving husband that does not get angry when he finds out his wife's been having an affair. Because again, passivity in those scenarios does not equal love. Anger against the other man in that situation, that's what equals, that's, that's the manifestation of love, right? That holy, righteous jealousy in that situation is what equals love in that situation. In the same way, the Bible tells this story about God going after our lover, which is sin, and destroying it or him, then bringing us back to himself. Though he's grieved by our sins, like a husband would be over a wife sinning in this capacity or vice versa, but like a husband to his wife, he goes after the, the lover, the flirter, the one taking her affections away from him and actually takes him out of the street and beats him into a bloody pulp and then goes and brings her back in the house and says, I love you and let's figure this out and let's atone here. That's what the, that's what the, the God of the Bible is like. That's what he's done for you. He's gone to war, you guys, for you. That's how much he's loved you and he currently does. Do you believe that? Do you really robustly believe that? Does it captivate you? Does it move you every day? Do you sing it? Do you recite it? Do you have people speak it over your life? Is it the center of, of your faith? Because this is the center of the cross. This is why the cross, we, we look at the cross and we see wrath and love. You know, God poured out his wrath upon his son because he's pouring his wrath out on the sin that Jesus absorbed in that moment. The Bible says that, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in that moment, the Son of God, though perfect, is becoming sin in front of God. And, God, and Jesus is the one punished, not us. So there's wrath, but inc incredible wrath, but incredible love, incredible jealousy for us. And that you win back our affections and incredible love at the same time. All these things are, are mixed together. But, but one thing is clear. God is not passive. He's active. He's full of love. And like a, a, a parent motivated to dive into the pool to save 
his or her drowning kid. You know, so to those lengths has God gone to save you. He's not just thrown a life preserver in the, in the pool and thought, well, I hope they find it. hope they cling to it, though they can't see in the water right now. I hope they kind of come up for air. And gr-. That's not how the God of the Bible works. He's do- he's do- he- because his love is better than that. Love goes further. True love goes further than that. He's jealous for you. He's fought your sin. He's fought death. He's killed it and destroyed it and beat it into that bloody pulp. And he's come and married you afresh. <laughs> it's incredible. Barely have a category for that, but it is true. So if you don't feel like you believe that, in one sense, it doesn't matter. I mean, I hope you do. I should rephrase that. Um, it, it, I hope you do, but it's not based on your feelings. It's to say, well, my heart thinks this about God, but this is what the Bible says. The invitation of Christ is to move from, from here to here and, and to recategorize the way you think about the gospel and what happened on, on the cross. It's deeply practical. Like when you sin, for example, too, do you think, well, God might, in marriage terms, God might divorce me, this might be the last straw for him, this might be it, or do you think God is going to fight the one that I was just flirting with? Which is it? It can't be both. It's the latter. I mean, praise God this is the case, that God in the gospel fights the one that we prostituted ourselves out to, who paid for our services, and God says he looks at that situation and is grieved deeply, but he destroys the one that was enticing us or flirting with us and us, and us with it or him or her or whatever. Praise God that's the case. That's what the cross is all about, destroying sin and death so that we aren't destroyed. In that he is jealous, in that he is good, in that he is a warrior, in that he is an actual caring, loving husband and not a deadbeat who just doesn't give a rip. Like he actually, actually cares. So wrath being a part of the cross is actually crucial. If you don't have that, you don't have love. Wrath and jealousy and love are inextricable. You have to have that. If you don't think that's a part of the cross, uh, you're, you have an incomplete view of what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. God poured out both in full, wrath and jealousy and love uh, together. So a couple of things here uh, to um, wrap up with. The idea of just letting, letting love wash over you and informing you what the gospel is is really about Remember, it's not good advice here. It's something we do at all, but rather something we pronounce and we say this is what God has done and we rejoice. Uh, David Ford says in his book, um, this is perhaps the hardest truth of any to grasp. Do we wake up every morning amazed that we are loved by God? This is perhaps the hardest truth of any to grasp. Sounds very simple. Do you wake up every morning amazed that you are loved by God? That's the ultimate you know, call for the Christian. Don't go back to the Ten Commandments. Don't try harder. Don't try to be more moral. You can't. That's not the point. You know, look at, look at Song 8. The, the essence of your spirituality is coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on Jesus' shoulder. That's the Bible. That's the, that's the epitome of the story right there is rest, marriage, grace. You're saved by his blood. You know, so then the focal point for us becomes staring at the cross over and over and over again until we just get dizzy and pass out. That's, put that at the top of your list to do every day as a Christian. You know, not waking up thinking, well, God, I'm going to do these five things for you today. Trash that. That's, that's enough of that. <laughs> Think, what has God done for me? Stare at the cross and get intoxicated by it. That's, that's the purpose of, of that's, that's the essence of our spirituality right there. If we don't aren't amazed that we're loved by God, what does that say about us? What do we not understand, right? 
We're not going to be changed from the inside out if we don't understand this. And no one in the room, myself included, fully believes that well. Just to be clear, just kind of level the playing field here. We'll always say, well, kind of no, if not full-blown no to that, right? At least it's a kind of no for everybody in the room. Uh, so th the question is, stare at the cross yourself in community. Understand the gospel better. Read the Bible. Actually read the Bible and hear about his love, what kind of love he has for you, and choose to believe it and ask God to make you feel it uh, even, even more. 1 John 4, and then we'll uh, close here. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear and love are at odds. Uh, it, it, if fear describes our relationship with the Lord, it's not full of love, right? It's kind of like, kind of like having a buffer. If you have good parents growing up, or if you're a good spouse, you got a really bad day at work or at school or whatever. But you might think, well, at least I have my spouse. At least I have love. At least I have my kids. At least I have peace, you know, in the home. There's that buffer. It's the same with Christianity. You know, it, it's this ultimate buffer to know that you're loved by God. You don't fear things as much anymore, and it captivates you, and it changes the way that we live as a church. But again, the focal point is love. It's not doing something for him. It's believing that he has loved you when you haven't really loved him back. Uh, that kind of love casts out fear, and, and it changes your heart. In all the ways the Bible prescribes, law can't do that. Morality can't do that alone. We, we need God to do something aside from it. And praise be to God, he does in the cross. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your grace in the gospel today. Thank you for loving us uh, to the extent that you did. Uh, in a way, I mean, categorically, we just barely have room for that, if at all, in our minds. Uh, but thank you, that's the case. Thank you that we can't fully understand your love, because what would that say about us? It would, it would maybe ascribe some kind of, you know, uh, deity on, on our side of things, or just too much on us, but thank you that you're big and we're small, that you're full of love and we're not, uh, but you chase us down nonetheless, and you bring us up out of the wilderness, you bring us up out of sin and death, you bring us up out of Egypt to be with you where you are, to lean on you, uh, to be given to, to be loved, and to love in return, and all that is true because of the cross. Thank you that your love, your love is a choosing love, it's a pursuing love, it's a captivating love. It's a, a finding kind of love. It's a fighting kind of love. It's a jealous kind of love. And we thank you for that. And I pray that that would captivate our hearts today and help us to respond to in song, but especially as we leave, to be moved by your grace into humility and into worship and into thanksgiving for the rest of our week. In Jesus' name.